there. Thanks for tuning in to one of our online sermons today. My name is Brianna Grunwald, and I'm the River Kids Director here at our Burton location at the River Church. And we'd love to connect with you today. One of the ways that you can connect is by texting River Connect one word, to 970-00, or by visiting our website at theriverchurch.cc to see more about who we are, what we do, and our upcoming events. If you'd like to give the River Church, you can do so by texting that dollar amount to 84321, or by clicking the Give tab on our website. We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the message today. Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 records what is without question the greatest sermon ever preached on planet Earth. And what's mysterious about it is we have no idea really exactly where it was preached. So somewhere along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus began to teach, and he, as we see in verse number one, he sat down, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but the crowds were there, and Jesus began to teach. What's interesting is he began to teach his disciples specifically, and the crowds were really overhearing a personal conversation. Uh, Matthew chapter five and verse number one, the Bible says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So the sermon that's going to follow in chapter 5, 6, and 7 is called some different things. One of my favorite ones is that it is called the Great Sermon of the Great King. Another one is a Discourse on Discipleship, or a Messianic Manifesto. But one commentator says it so clearly, this teaching that we're going to look at is the heart of Jesus' teaching for all Christians. And so we're going to look at the core of what Jesus has taught. Last fall, so last October and November, we looked at the first uh, few verses of this chapter. Over the next two months, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 5. And then next fall, we'll look at chapter 6. And the fall after that, we'll look at chapter 7. So nothing like drawing this out as long as we possibly can for you, okay? <laughs> So we're going to jump in today into chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse number 1 and 2 just to give a little bit of context of, of where things are happening. So the Bible says that Jesus saw the crowds, and he left the crowd. It's an interesting way to begin the chapter. He sees the crowds, the crowds that had been following him, the crowds that had witnessed miracles, the crowds that had and would be fed uh, by Jesus' miraculous powers, the crowds that would be fascinated by the teaching of Jesus, they were there. And Jesus kind of walks away from them, and the Bible says he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so two things that I want you to see, there in verse number one and then in verse two. The first one is when he sat down. So here... <coughs> If I were to begin today by sitting down and saying, hey, today you're going to (coughs) stand, pardon me, first of all, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, It would be kind of weird in our cultural context for someone who is speaking to be sitting and people who are listening to be standing. But that's what is happening in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is taking a seat, and when he sits down culturally, Everyone knows that Jesus is about to say some important things. 
<clears throat> it would be like if someone gets up in front of a room and says, excuse me, everyone, could I have your attention? And, and so as you hear that, you're going to turn and say, okay, what does this person have to say? Maybe it's an announcement. Maybe it's uh, a word of caution. Uh, maybe it's good news. <coughs> Some of those different things, right? That, that is kind of culturally how we would do those things. Well, when Jesus sits down, it's doing the same thing. People are going, oh, man, he's about to say some important things. It's reiterated in verse number two. The Bible says, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. So kind of an idiom there to say, man, he opened his mouth. So this was going to be an important proclamation. This was going to be, as one writer put, a significant pronouncement or a significant announcement as to what Jesus was doing. So as we go through the Sermon on the Mount over the next few weeks, I want you to realize that there are three groups of people listening. There at the Sermon on the Mount, you have the crowd, and the crowd followed Jesus for a variety of reasons. The crowd followed Jesus, some of them because they enjoyed the teaching, or they liked seeing miracles, or they liked the food. But eventually the crowd would turn against Jesus. The same crowd that hailed Jesus as king would be the same crowd that cried out, crucify him. And, and so you, you would have both of those things. So the crowd turned very quickly on Jesus. At one point, they wanted Jesus to be king, and just days later, they wanted Jesus dead. And so there was quite a vacillation with the crowd. The other group that you have there who's the primary audience or the primary recipients of this teaching are the disciples, now, when we say disciples, it's important that you understand what we mean by that are students, students of Jesus, followers of Jesus. And so Jesus' people are, um, are sitting there, and they are the primary recipients. So it would be like if I were talking to one of my kids. Let's say my, my youngest daughter got in trouble, and so I'm having a focused conversation with her. Like, Listen, you're not going to do that again. We're not going to act like that in public. If you happen to walk by and hear that, you're going to go, oh, okay, that conversation isn't directed towards me. That's what's happening here. This is a specific conversation between Jesus and his students. But you also have later on, you have the religious leaders there. And so you have kind of acquaintances of Jesus, and then you have the followers of Jesus as the disciples, but you also have Jesus' opponents, people that want to see Jesus ruined. And so they're there with the motivation. Thank you for bringing me water again because I forgot. I'm like an idiot. Thank you. Oh, this is a cold one too. Thank you. So they want to see Jesus really burnt down. They want to see Jesus fail. And so they're, they're listening with the motive to catch Jesus. Like, they want to see, is Jesus going to say something inconsistency, uh, inconsistent? Is Jesus going to bumble his words? Uh, is Jesus going to say something that's against the law or against Moses or whatever it might be? So they're listening intently, hoping that Jesus will fall into a trap. That's, that's what they're hoping here. That's who, the, that's who the kind of different people are there that are listening. So let's jump forward a little bit. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to go to verse number 13, and that's kind of going to be our text for the day. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 13. 
So Jesus has just taught what we know as the Beatitudes. So Beatitudes is this idea of this, comes from Latin, but it's the word blessed. So Jesus has said, blessed are the poor in the spirit, and blessed are they that mourn, and blessed are the peacemakers. We'll circle back and look at those in a moment. But now Jesus says here in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now keep in mind the audience. The people that Jesus is talking specifically to. He's talking to his students. He's talking to his followers, his disciples. And so he looks at these 12 guys, one of which we know is a fraud. Judas is is not legit. And so he's looking at really 11 guys and he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. That's a weird kind of thing to say. Now, we have different expressions. And so we might use the phrase, man, those people are real salt of the earth people. And, And so that finds its roots here in the words of Jesus. But if I were to just walk up to you today and be like, hey, how you doing? You are salt. You'd be like, you are weird, right? It would just be kind of a strange, like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you were getting at. So you might try to dissect that and go, hey, it's salt. Well, what do we use salt for? Okay, I guess if I go eat and I have, you know, I need salt on French fries or I need salt on some portion of my meal, I'm going to reach over and grab the little container of salt, and I'm going to put some salt on my food, right? It's kind of a a simple thing. So we use salt in that capacity in in our food. We also use salt in different ways, right? At my house, we have in the basement, we have a water softener, and there's a tank next to that. You pull off the lid, and you pour in bags of salt, and it softens the water and, and does some different things. Also, here's bad news. Winter is coming, uh, I pray against it every year, uh, but winter is coming. And so we will use salt to do what? Salt will go on the roads. We'll have different trucks that are filled with salt, little uh, sprinklers basically on the back of that truck, and that, that will spread salt on the road, and that will thaw the ice. It will make the roads safe. You'll have bags of salt or other things on your, your porch or near a sidewalk, and you'll you'll spread salt on the sidewalk so that it's safe and it, and it, it thaws, melts uh, the um, ice that will be on there. So salt, even in a modern context, has some different purposes. But still, if I were to walk up to you and say, you're salt, you'd be like, uh, for food, melting ice, water, I don't, know, I don't know what you're trying to get at. So to understand the passage, what we can't do, and this often happens when we read the Bible, we look at the Bible through our modern lenses first. So before we can look at this passage of Scripture and kind of move it to our modern understanding or modern context, we have to go back and say, okay, Jesus is talking 2,000 years ago. And so what did they use salt for? Here's one, what, what, what one commentator says, and I love this. He says, the Greeks, when they talked about salt, called it divine. Roman soldiers were actually paid in salt, hence the word salary. So if you've ever used the word salary or you're a salaried employee, that comes from the idea of Roman soldiers being paid in salt. 
From the earliest times, salt was considered an offering to the gods. All Hebrew meat offerings were to be salted. One historian at the time, and D.A. Carson quotes him, saying, nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. So for us, like, you know, I'm not, I don't have to salt my meal. If there's not salt on the table at the restaurant or at home, it's not a gigantic deal for me. I, I could move on. It's not something I, I use a whole ton. The water softener seems to be important, and I do not want to die on the sidewalk this winter, so salt comes in handy there. But when you start to think about 2,000 years ago, salt, when they're looking at salt being divine, when they're looking at salt being so valuable that it's almost currency, you could pay someone in salt, that's where the phrase, someone is worth their salt, comes from. You start to realize that salt was significantly more important 2,000 years ago than it is to us today. So what did they use salt for? Well, a few things. Two primary purposes in, in Jesus' context, they would use salt for. Number one, for food. And number two, for preserving meat. So I don't know if you've had the pleasure of dealing with rancid or, or meat that has rotted, but it is not a joy. Uh, a few years ago, when my wife and I, it was probably 10, 12 years ago, what's that? We were at camp, thank you. You said this earlier, and I, I'm not a mind reader or a lip reader. So... Uh, we had a, a freezer, and so my, my wife said, hey, I'm going to buy this quarter of a cow or half of a cow. And uh, we both love beef, and so it was like, yeah, let's do that. So we bought the cow. You get the freezer. We put it out in our garage at that time. You plug it in. Thing fires up, and you start filling that thing with beef. And it's just fantastic. And so it's like, ah, oh, man, this will be awesome. The problem was is at some point while we were gone at camp, the fuse went out. Or the fuse got unscrewed, or, or something happened where the power to the freezer turned off. Well, you only get a little bit of time, right? It's in the garage, so it's going to get hot. And uh, so what's going to happen is that meat is going to thaw, and that meat started to rot. So day after day after day, that meat got worse and worse and worse, until one day, I think, as I remember, Jen walks out there, flies are everywhere, and it's like, what is going on out here? And then she opened the freezer and realized what was going on out there. So she shut the freezer and then said, hey, how much do you love me? Right? This is how I remember the story. And, and, be, and because I'm telling the story, that's how I'll tell it, right? But I remember saying, she goes, I cannot do that. Will you please go clean out the freezer? It is, the meat is completely rot, rotten and rancid. And so I said, okay. And so, I mean, I went out there and I don't know if I tied something around my face or whatnot, but I began reaching into this freezer and with my hands, pulling out and putting into garbage bags the nastiest stuff I may have ever touched in my life. And the problem is the deeper that you went into the freezer, the worse that it got. Now, here's a sidebar note to that story. We eventually got motivated, cleaned out the freezer, tipped it over in the driveway and let it like air cool. And we thought, oh, it'll be good. We'll restore the freezer. Someone thought we were throwing it away, stopped by, picked it up, put it in their truck, and drove away. You know how annoying that is? Someone has a really clean... If that's you, by the way, repent, all right, and return the freeze. No, I'm kidding, right? So it just went from bad to worse, right, this whole deal. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have freezers, 
And so when you would, you know, um, butcher a lamb or, or when you would have different meat, the way that you would preserve it is you would salt it. You would take salt and you would rub meat all over that salt. And the salt, by God's design, has the ability to preserve the life of that meat. Now, not, you know, extensively or in the same way a freezer would, but for long periods of time. Matter of fact, if you've ever gone to any sort of museum or Greenfield Village or something like that, you'll see in the basements or the cellars of some homes, they'll demonstrate meat hanging and, and the meat is being preserved because it's been rubbed in salt. So it's still kind of a little strange because you look and go, Jesus is looking at his followers and saying to them, hey, you are the salt of the earth. Well, they understood salt was valuable and they understood salt helped food, but they understood primarily that salt had a preserving purpose. What is Jesus saying? The earth is rotting. Now, I don't know about you, but I am stunned, frankly, by the moral decay of society. Like, there are things that I see where I'm, I'm, I'm not a particularly old man, I'm not a young man anymore, but I look around and I'm shocked. I'm shocked by things that are considered to be normal or considered to be okay. Uh, sin that even, you know, dec- a few decades ago would have been considered to be socially unacceptable is now just not socially acceptable, but it's socially praised as, as courageous and brave and different words that are used for that. It's, it's kind of shocking. And so I do not have to be convinced that the moral depravity of the world, uh, the moral uh, structure, the moral level of the world is decaying. There, there's some rottenness to it. And so what Jesus is saying here is he is saying, you, my followers, you, my disciples, you, the students of Jesus' teaching, you are to the rottenness of this world or the potential moral decay of this world. You are salt. You're the salt of the earth. Now, I want you to hold your spot in Matthew and go just one book forward to the right to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter number 9. And as we go through here, you're going to see this, this, one commentator has talked about it, these verses having an emphasis on human relationships. So I'll explain what that means in a moment. Mark chapter number 9, in verse number 50, so last verse of the chapter there. The scripture says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Leave Mark and go to the right a little further to Colossians. Colossians chapter number 4.
Colossians chapter number 4, I want you to see verse 6 specifically, but we'll start in verse 5 just for a little bit of context. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. So walk in wisdom towards people who don't know Christ, people who are not Christians. Walk in wisdom there. Make the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So go back now to chapter 5 of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, and we're seeing culturally that salt was incredibly valuable. The primary purpose for salt was food-related and then preserving meat from potentially rotting. But let's just state some logical things. Salt that stays in the shaker will never improve the food. Salt that stays in the bag will never melt the ice. Salt that stays away from the meat will never preserve the meat. The salt literally has to be rubbed into that meat to preserve it from rotting. What is the Bible saying here? The Bible is saying Christians are the salt in this world keeping moral decay at bay. Keeping moral decay from running down the tracks unchecked. Now, what we talked about just a moment ago, when we look around, we see moral decay. And maybe like you, I, I become upset. I become frustrated. I become a little shocked. There's, there's some things in the world that are normalized now that will make me blush. I'm like, wow, that's, that's normal now. That's acceptable now. And often as a Christian, and this, this happens in the church very often, Pastors, preachers will preach against the sins of the world. But when we stop, we, we need to recognize that I think, based upon what Jesus is saying here, our anger over sin of the world or our frustration or our grief is often pointed in the wrong place. First and foremost, I think our grief over sin and our frustration at the moral decay of society our frustration, our anger, our motivation needs to begin first and foremost with the church, with God's people. Because here's what Jesus is saying. You, church, you followers of Jesus, we are the salt of the earth. And the earth means, the commentator writes it as, it represents our sphere of influence. So where God has placed you in your family in your neighborhood, in your community, in your school, in your sphere of influence, your network of friends. God has placed you there to be a moral restraint. Someone who preserves rottenness. Now, what does that mean practically? That means you and I, we are living out the Beatitudes of verse number three down to verse number 11 in our sphere of influence. Look back at chapter five in verse number three. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn. Verse five, blessed are the humble. 
or the meek. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Verse 11, kind of a reiteration of that. Blessed or happy are you in those moments where you're lied about for doing right or for the sake of Christ. Now think about this in a social setting or at your work. When people see you, do they see you as someone who loves gossip? Or do they see you as a peacemaker? Do they see you as a, a drama queen, someone who's always in the know, someone who loves to be part of the grapevine? Or do they see you and go, yeah, he, she, they don't want to be part of gossip. Because if they hear that there's strife, they're going to want to figure out a way to make peace. They're going to want peace in the family. They're going to want peace in the office. They're going to want peace in the community. They're not going to want to like, hey, will you pick my side? Let's, let's trash her over there. And then when we see her, we'll talk nice to her. But then we're, when, when her back turns, we'll destroy her credibility again. People will begin to see Christians as living out the Beatitudes. Verse number eight, will they see you and I as pure in heart? Meaning, man, I was going to tell you that story, but I realized that... You, you wouldn't like it. You, you wouldn't like to hear that joke. You wouldn't like to hear that story. You wouldn't like to hear this, this latest escapade with this woman or this man. You wouldn't like to hear that because I know that that's not the way you live. Verse number seven, does someone come to us thinking that they're gonna receive you know, an edict of judgment against somebody else? Man, this person hurt me. I know, they're the worst. Or does someone think when they come to us as Christians that they and the person that may have hurt them or offended them is going to receive mercy? How about verse number five? When someone comes to us, do they know that we're teachable because we're meek and we'll be humble? How about verse number four? Blessed are those who mourn. We're, we're mourning over sin, not just the sin of the world, but we're mourning over our own sin. Will people come to us and tell us some things and, and they'll go, oh, I probably shouldn't tell you this because I know you're going to be grieved by this because you don't live this way or you don't celebrate sin. That's what Jesus means by saying, you are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Salt in the, in the ancient context preserved food. But also you can start to look and go, people have spiritual wounds in their life. What does salt do? Salt in a wound stings. And what I'm talking about here is not self-righteousness. What I'm talking about here is you and I humbly living out the central teaching of the Beatitudes, living out the teaching of Jesus so that people know that. So that there's a moral restraint in society, but that also... There's some salt in the wound of sin. And then what else does salt do? If you eat too much salt, you get thirsty. You need something to drink. Our conduct in this world ought to stir people. It, it ought to restrain moral decay and our behavior in this world as meek Loving, caring, merciful people ought to stir a thirst in people's hearts. We also know that Jesus 
is the one with living water. He is the living water. It satisfies. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus says, you, so meaning his followers, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? So there's some, some challenge here to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. Because, again, rewinding the clock, chemically salt was a little bit different uh, for us. I'm not saying salt was different, but the way they... Uh, gathered salt wasn't as clean as the way we do it. So there were several ways. Uh, number one, uh, the Mediterranean Sea was right there, part of the ocean. They would go, they would put huge amounts of, of water in these big bins. Uh, the water would evaporate and then the salt would be left there in the bin. And so they would collect the salt that way. The other thing is in the south of Israel is some, a place called the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is, uh, has no outlet. So all the water comes there. It collects. Nothing lives there, hence the name Dead Sea. But there are huge, 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 huge salt deposits there uh, around the Dead Sea. There's some connection to Sodom and Gomorrah if you want to go down that track. But the salt there, I've swam in it a handful of times in my life. And you literally have to be wearing shoes, some semblance of sandals or water shoes, because the salt deposits on the, on the floor of, of that, that sea will, will cut you. They hurt terribly. That was a place where they would collect salt. So that salt would sometimes be mixed with water. That salt would sometimes be fixed with, fixed with other elements or uh, sand or soil or something like that. What the Bible is getting at here in verse 13 is saying, but if the salt is diluted, diluted in some way, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer, meaning if the salt is diluted, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So you might just picture like a, a bucket of water where the salt is so diluted where it's no good. You're just going to walk out the front door in ancient times and you're going to throw it in the middle of the street. It's, it's not useful to be in your house anymore. And this is what the Bible is saying here. The Bible is saying you and I, as Christ followers, students of Jesus, we have a purpose to preserve moral decay in society by living out, please hear me, by living out the Beatitudes. But if we stop being the salt of the earth, We've been deluded. We've abandoned our purpose. Hold your spot in Matthew. I want to show you a couple passages to this point. Go to the right and go to Romans. Romans chapter number 12. Romans chapter number 12. I want you to see the first phrase of chapter, excuse me, of verse 2. But I'm going to begin in verse 1 just for context here. So Paul is writing. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So this is all gospel-rooted. This is because of what Jesus has done. 
So I appeal to you on the basis of the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or which is your reasonable or rational act of service. Meaning, Paul's saying, you've experienced the mercy of God. You've experienced the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life. That is only by the mercy of God. The only rational response to salvation is complete surrender of our lives to Christ. That's the only rational response to the gospel. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So the warning here is to not become conformed to the pattern of this world or the ways of this world or the spirit of the age. You can leave there, go to the right, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5. So you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, I mean, if it's become diluted, there's, there's no point. It's, it's worthless. You can throw it out in the street, and the only purpose that it'll really serve is for people to walk on it. Now, First Corinthians chapter 5, in verse number 9. So... In the church here at Corinth, who this letter is written to, they were having some major problems. There was some really serious, unchecked sexual sin in the church. So verse number nine, Paul has to clarify some things. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, so a previous letter, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Paul says, I wrote to you about these things, and you've misunderstood them, so I want to clarify. He says, when I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people, he says, I'm not talking about people that are in the world. And he clarifies it in verse number 11. He says, I'm talking about the people who bear the name of brother, the people who claim the name of Christ, the people who claim to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. He said, when I told you not to associate with sexual immoral people, I wasn't talking about lost people. Matter of fact, the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, if that were the case, then you would have to go out of the world. You would have to move to outer space. You would have to go to heaven like it's nonsense to even consider So what is the scripture teaching here in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 5? The Bible is saying we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We have to be in the world because the salt has to come into contact with with the the meat, if you will. It has to come into contact with, with the people that it's trying to preserve. So we live in this world, but the danger, the warning from the scripture is not to become conformed to the patterns of this world or live in the same way. So it's easy for Christians to get irritated and upset and point fingers at the sins of this world. And what the Bible is saying, listen, you are, we are the moral restraint of that 
But if morality isn't being restrained, the first place to look is at the salt. Has the salt in the King James lost its savor, its saltiness? Has, have the people of God abandoned their call and their mission? Meaning, do we look, sound, and act like, think like, process like, plan like everybody else in the world? Or is there a distinction? Or have we become conformed? One of the, the big pictures here, and I don't want to introduce, introduce a new idea here, but I think it's really important. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, so Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is saying, this is how my kingdom works. This is how my followers are. are this, is, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a, a citizen of heaven. This is, this is Christianity in its, in its true sense. And then we have the kingdom of this world, which we all know well how this world operates. The problem is some of you sitting in this room are trying to live in both worlds. To be really blunt with you, I watch it on your faces as I preach to you. Because you hear truth of Scripture and you love Jesus. You're thankful for the cross. You're thankful for that, that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin and rise from that. I watch that. I watch you sing. I love to listen to you worship. I love preaching you. I watch it on your faces. But at the same time, you can see the wrestling match between which kingdom you will live in. And it's just this pulling. You're the salt of the earth. The problem is some of us have lost our saltiness. Now, you're a bit salty in the modern sense of the word. But what I mean is we're, we're not salty in the sense that we're preserving moral decay. We're not the, the beacon of mercy and, and of kindness and of the fruit of the Spirit and living out those beatitudes in our relationships, in our family, in our friendships with our coworkers, with our, with our friends at school or, or friends on campus. We're not the salt that we ought to be, and the reason is because we've become diluted. We've become conformed. And so we think the same way, and we plan the same way, we dream about the same things, we parent the same way. Our marriages look the same way. We get divorced at the same rate. We cheat the same rate. I mean, just walk through all those different things. And then we wonder, man, the world just is, the moral decay is outrageous. And the first place we ought to look is to the salt. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's become diluted. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The idea here is this word useless. Useless. I was talking to a guy in our church this week and he had no idea 
that what he was saying was going to impact me the way it did. I was just trying to encourage him a little bit, tell him I, you know, I thought God had some cool things in store for him in the future. He said, yeah, I don't know what God has for me. He goes, I just want to be useful. And at the time, I thought, oh, that's, that's really inspiring. And then I started studying this passage, and this whole passage is about being useful for God's kingdom. Useful for God's purposes. I thought, man, I want to be useful to God. I don't want to become so deluded or so warped in my mind and in my heart and in my passions and in the things I work for and invest in that it looks identical to the world. I want to be useful to the Lord. And so I just want to look at you today and just say the words of Jesus. You, you and me, we are the salt of the earth where God has put you, your family, your community, your neighborhood, your school, your teams, your friends, whatever. God has put you in that spot for a purpose. You're the salt of the earth. And some of you have become diluted. Where frankly, if your family, your kids, your friends were asked, hey, is he a Christian? Is she a Christian? They would say, I, I think so. I mean, they go to church, I guess. But the way you operate, let's just call it out has become worthless for the kingdom. Man, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a worthless church. You're okay. I always love to hear what people's theories are going to say to them. I don't want to be a worthless church. I don't want to be a worthless Christian. So what do we do? We come to the Lord and we repent of the things that have begun to delude us or have deluded us, made us ineffective. And we say, God, restore me. Restore me. And we begin to say, Lord, please help me to live out the Beatitudes in my family, in my workplace, in my school. Because I want to restore, I want to restrain moral decay. But I also want to be a person that makes people thirsty for the gospel. I want them to see the way that I live, and I want them to go, man, something is different about her, something is different about him. And I want them to see that so they can be drawn to the hope of Christ. Let's pray together.